1 Corinthians 15. Please turn your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15. We gather on this Lord's Day as a nation at war, and it seems as if our entire world is in a state of heightened agitation. In such circumstances, it does not require an unusually active imagination to conceive how current events might erupt in a worldwide war. We would do well to pray that this does not happen. On the other hand, we would not do well to become fixated on war and the fortunes of our nation. We must remember in these days that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We are pilgrims here. This world is not our home. And our Lord taught us how to think about war. Even if we are soldiers, He taught us how to think in a distinctive frame of mind. Remember his words in Matthew 24. Jesus taught his disciples on one occasion. Listen to this carefully. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. See to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So in the teachings of Jesus, we learn that our fixation is not to be upon war, but upon what Jesus called the end. And what is the end that he had in mind Later in the passage he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Do you know what wars between nations really are? Do we see in the teaching of Jesus what these wars really are? They are really God's maneuverings to prepare this world for the dissemination of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I don't know how exactly God intends for that to happen, but I believe in the context of Matthew 24, if we take out of their principles of his mindset and his focus, these wars accomplish his ends. And that is for the gospel of the kingdom of Christ to be proclaimed to every corner of this earth. Through war, God providentially and sovereignly works to seat Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lamb, on a throne in Jerusalem from which He will rule the earth. Do we pray that our armies win? Well, I'm not particularly sure that we're a whole lot better than the armies we attack sometimes, maybe to some degree. I don't know. I think that's a fair prayer. But I think above all else, we need to keep our minds centered on the fact that Jesus would win. However, that needs to be done. 
any stand that we might take on this or that political position as Americans is of relatively minor importance. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel to all nations, never losing sight of the fact that we are pilgrims, that we are ambassadors of a different homeland. The most important position on which we will ever take a stand in the affairs of this world is our stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as believers of this gospel, we have lingered at this table to remember and to proclaim the ultimate battle. The day when Jesus Christ took our sin and took the sin of this fallen world and made it His own. The message of Christ crucified and Christ risen. It is to this message that Paul directed the attention of the Corinthian church in this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, a familiar passage to which I'd like to direct our attention again this morning, looking at it in a different way than we have in the past. But as we noted over previous weeks, the Corinthian church suffered much internal strife. Doctrinal disputes and debilitating church practices plagued this assembly. By the time we reach the 15th chapter, Paul has spilled a lot of ink addressing these numerous troubles. But now as he rounds the last corner of his instructions to the Corinthians, he homes in on what he sees as of utmost importance. This was a church in which people actually got drunk at the Lord's Supper. We might have a few things to say about that. This was a church at which wealthy people came with food at church meals and gorged themselves while other believers right near them did not have enough to eat. This was a church whose assemblies on the Lord's Day were disruptive and often caused more harm than good. This was an assembly with major doctrinal and practical problems. Yet when Paul comes to the end of the book, he rounds this last turn. You know what he says? I'm going to talk to you now about what is of utmost importance. Beyond all of these troubles that you are facing, these great challenges within your congregation, of ultimate issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we could jump ahead just a little to verse 12 of chapter 15, we notice here what is really driving Paul in this, in this discussion, in this entire chapter. I think it is 15:12 in part where he says, But if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If it is preached that Christ has been raised, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul realized that this challenge constituted a direct assault against the very foundation of the Christian faith. And so in this chapter, Paul pens the classic defense of the fundamental Christian doctrine of bodily resurrection. Paul introduces, introduces his defense of the resurrection by establishing, first of all, in the first 11 verses, that the doctrine of resurrection lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. 
This radical belief in bodily resurrection was at fundamental odds with the pagan philosophies of that day. But this doctrine, argues Paul, is our life. He knew this Christ who said the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the ends of the world. Don't worry your head about wars. Look to the end. Paul knew at the heart of that message of the gospel was the resurrection. This radical belief in bodily resurrection. And so he calls upon the Corinthian church to consider what is of utmost importance. First of all, the saving, the saving power of the gospel. Verse 1. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. We notice here, first of all, that under this saving power of the gospel, we notice that this is a message proclaimed. I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you of what you know. Paul's topic here is the gospel. His audience is believers, and he says, I preach this gospel to you. We're reminded here of Romans 10, 17. Saving faith comes by hearing a message. And that message is the gospel. I preach this gospel to you, says Paul. The gospel is a message proclaimed. It is secondly, we notice in verse 1, a message received. I preach to you this gospel, which you received. This gospel is first of all received in conviction, or with conviction. You receive this gospel, and on which you have taken your stand. They did not hear Paul's preaching with mere curiosity or intellectual assent. He proclaimed the gospel of Christ, and they responded to it by taking their stand on it. They wholeheartedly embraced this message. They staked their eternal destiny on it. It is received with conviction. It, is secondly, it secondly results in salvation, verse 2. By this gospel you are saved. This gospel message saves us from the just punishment of our sins, eternal death in hell. And as Paul says elsewhere, this salvation constitutes a spiritual transformation. As we have read the text of Scripture today, a spiritual transformation by which the sinner is justified. The spiritual orphan is adopted into God's family and the soul is set free from the bondage of sin. We are reconciled to God as enemies and on and on it goes. But by receiving this message and taking your stand upon it, you were saved. Received with conviction, resulting in salvation, and necessitating persevering, persevering belief. Verse 2, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Not otherwise, you have lost what you had, but if you do not hold firmly to this gospel, you believed in vain in the first place. Now notice the emphasis here in, at the end of verse 2 is upon the word I preached to you. Paul is saying if you do not hold firmly to the message I preached, your Christianity is worthless. We could, all, we could say it this way, it never really was. I preached a message, you received that message and if you have come to stand on it, you will hold to it firmly in belief to the end. 
And so it tells us, teaches us, that we must embrace the right message if we do not cling firmly to that message. It is evidence, then, that we never got the point in the first place. Now, that doesn't mean, and we need to be cautious here, that we need to know all there is to know about the salvation message of Christ in order to be genuinely converted. But it is to say, if we do not hold that teaching as it is revealed to us over time, we reject the gospel of Christ. We reject the true message. We cannot be saved. Well, what is that message? That certainly brings that question to mind then, doesn't it? I preach the message through which salvation comes. What is it? And that's what he discusses here at verse 3. We see the essential elements of the gospel. He reminds them of the saving power of the gospel. Now he turns to the essential elements of the gospel at verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. The message Paul preached and the Corinthians received was received by the Apostle Paul himself via divine revelation. Having received that message from God, Paul in turn passed it on. This is what matters above all else, says Paul. And now he delineates that gospel. It can be broken down into two major heads, two major points. First of all, we have the death of Jesus. Verse 3, that this is what I received, I passed on to you as of utmost importance, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died on behalf of our sins. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the meaning here in 1 Corinthians 15. The for, the word translated for, Christ died for our sins, could be translated in behalf of our sins. Because of our sins, he died. He became, says Paul to the Galatians, a curse for us. Peter put it this way, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It is obvious that Jesus died. But how do you really know that he died for you? How do we really know that his death was in behalf of our sins? That's the idea, I think the burden of the next point. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. God had pointed forward to Jesus' death since the days of Adam and Eve. We think of the classic statement, seven centuries before Jesus died in the prophet Isaiah where he said his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He was oppressed and afflicted as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Half a millennium before Jesus died, the prophet Daniel in 9.26 pinpointed the time that Jesus would die, when he would be cut off. We have these amazing statements that this poor itinerant preacher would be buried with the rich, that in crucifixion he would be uniquely pierced, that he would be so beaten and marred that no one would know who he was and yet not one bone would be broken. 
All of these prophecies coming together, Daniel pinpointing the day so that Jesus could say during his ministry, Luke 22, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, drawing again from Isaiah 53. And this is what Jesus said, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. He died according to the scriptures. Centuries of prophetic preparation teach us that what he said he was doing, he really did. He died in behalf of our sins. As God's sacrifice, proving that his death accomplished everything that God said it would. We see his death declared here. Then verse 2, his death evidenced. I, uh, verse 3, rather, uh, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Then verse 4, that he was buried. His death is evidenced by his burial. You can find this very day scholars who will jump through all types of hoops to say that Jesus did not die on a Roman cross. The only reason I can understand for this is all of the prophecy that is there to point to a cross death for Christ, this one lifted up on a stake. But there are, there are intellectuals, scholars, philosophers, if we would like to call them that, who will go on record today to argue that Jesus did not die on the cross. That is an attack on the cross of Jesus Christ, but that is also an attack on the burial of Jesus Christ. It is amazing to me, just to take a sideline here, of how people 2,000 years removed from the scene think that they have all of a sudden come up with what really happened. And the, put these all together. The Roman soldiers, the Jewish rabbis, and the followers of Christ all of whom were there, and all of whom had reasons not to support one another's false ideas, all knew that Jesus was put in the earth and sealed in a tomb. They all knew it. His burial is the evidence that he was dead. The death of Jesus... Four sins, attested by burial, the gospel. Second element in the gospel is the resurrection. Verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Notice the phrase again, according to the scriptures. There is a unique tense used in the Greek here with the, with the verb was raised. It is found in the perfect tense. Jesus Christ's resurrection, it tells us, is an ongoing, permanent, fixed state. He is risen today. And he died according to the Scriptures. In like manner, he rose according to the Scriptures. When Peter preached the first message in Jerusalem after Christ's ascension, he went to Psalm 16, which said as proof of the resurrection, using that as proof of the resurrection, it said, you will not abandon to the grave. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. This has come true said Peter. This prophetic word, according to the scriptures, he rose from the dead. And the attestation, the proof of his resurrection, verses 5 through 8, he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Peter, 
and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, apparently his uh, Christ's half-brother, and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. We won't take the time to talk about the historical information that gets attached to each of these appearances, information we find in the Gospel accounts. But suffice it here to say that Paul chooses out five of the ten resurrection accounts, or appearances, uh, post-resurrection appearances that Christ made to his followers in the Gospels. This was no myth. Just as Jesus' death was attested by his burial, so the reality of his resurrection was attested by hundreds of witnesses in various settings, locations, and numbers of witnesses. Now think about this. Paul is writing nearly somewhere in the range of a quarter century after all of this had taken place. Twenty-five years is a pretty long time in which to give up your myth particularly when you're dying for it. To this very day, all of these witnesses who were still alive clung to the truth. We saw him. And they all, with no exception, were willing to die before they would deny what their eyes saw. We saw him. Now at verse 8, Paul turns to his own place in the gospel history. He said, last of all, he, the risen Jesus, appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That is, Jesus appeared as he was, to Paul as Paul was traveling to persecute Christians in Damascus, Acts chapter 9. All of the appearances to the other apostles took place before Christ's ascension and after they had met Jesus. Paul is abnormally born into the Christian faith because Paul saw Jesus after his ascension and this for the first time in his life. So in self-deprecating terms, Paul speaks of himself as an abortion. The Greek word is used of a baby born prematurely, and often that child was born dead or would die in that setting and in that time. Some conjecture that this was a derogatory phrase some of Paul's critics were using of him. Look at him. He's ugly. He looks like an abortion. We don't know. But he says, I'll take that. I was abnormally born. I was like an, a horrifying abortion. But I am an apostle. He turns now to a consideration of that apostolic authority, and we need to realize that this is the authority through which this gospel was proclaimed. The authority of the, the apostle of Christ, the one who saw Jesus Christ in resurrected form and who was taught by him in the Arabian desert. We note then the apostolic authority of the gospel, verses 9 through 11. We find, first of all, Paul's singular unworthiness. He goes on to expand. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church 
of God. And believe me, that's not a throwaway phrase. The church of God. I persecuted those people. The word for here at verse 9 is an explanation of verse 8. Why is it, Paul, that you speak of yourself as abnormally born, as a horrifying abortion? He says, here's the reason, because I am the least of the apostles, for I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. He does not deserve to be an apostle. And you know what? Paul never forgot that. There is a line of counsel that is heard widely today that says something like this, since God has forgiven our sins, we should forget about them. Any remembrance of our past sins constitutes a failure to appreciate God's grace. There's an, a level of truth in that counsel. But I don't believe that it is distinctly biblical at all. Certainly it is true. We should not relive our sins in our minds. We should not dwell upon them in a morose fashion. But I find more and more in the New Testament documents that the Bible teaches that our sense of the greatness of God's grace grows proportionately to our sense of the vileness of our sin before a holy God. You find anyone who has a taste for the beauty of God's grace and you will find there a person who knows I am a sinner. I am, an, I am a moral abortion. Paul did not think in these terms. Forget anything that you've done wrong. It's covered in the blood of Christ. That is true. But he never forgot the pit from which he was pulled. Unworthy to be an apostle. He focuses on his singular unworthiness. He focuses secondly upon God's amazing grace. Verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am. What does he mean by that? I am an apostle. I killed Christians. But God chose me in His grace as an apostle. He saw me, saw me in my reeking moral filth and depravity, and He picked me up and made me His own and gave me a message to proclaim to the nations. I am what I am by His grace and this amazing grace which God extended to Paul, he says, was not wasted on him. That's the same word we find back in verse 2. Let me read the word first here in verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and this grace to me was not without effect. That's the same word we find back in verse 2 translated vain. God's choosing of me was not in vain. But as a matter of fact, because of His grace, I worked harder than all of them, than all of the apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I worked harder than all of the other apostles. This Greek word, worked harder, translates a word, we have translated here a Greek word, which means to work to the point of weariness, straining with all the energy 
that God would supply. As a number of commentators have pointed out here, what is Paul saying? I think it deserves noting here. Paul is not saying if they had worked harder, they would have accomplished what I did. This is a singularly poor place for Paul to be bragging, and I don't believe Paul ever did brag in the text of Scripture, certainly. I think what he is saying is, God's grace was so great in my life that I worked harder than all of them. God's grace works in our lives through great effort. Any great effort that we give in the work of God is His grace working through us. So I think that's what Paul is saying. I worked harder than all of them because of the grace of God that was given to me. To preclude any to preclude any false conclusion. He quickly adds, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The grace of God that was with me. Just that simple preposition is a beautiful statement. It is as if Paul saw the grace of God walking aside him and helping him along to do all of the effort and put forth the energy that he put forth to proclaim the gospel throughout the ancient world. How did that grace play out in the interest of the Corinthians? Here Paul comes full circle back to the matter at hand. And we see then, thirdly, the apostolic message. The unworthiness of the apostle, God's amazing grace, all leading to the apostolic message, verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Whether me or one of the other apostles, he's saying, We all preach the same gospel. And it is this apostolic, authoritative message that you believe. What is that gospel? The death of Jesus Christ for sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ in victory over the grave. Now here's the problem. By God's grace, I'd like to go from this week, if He gives us opportunity, through to Easter Sunday, and to delve into this doctrine of resurrection. And here's the whole problem. He lays out what is of utmost importance, that is the gospel. And he turns now to people in this church who are questioning the resurrection of the dead. Listen, says Paul, you have to get this right. Jesus rose from the dead. That is the authoritative gospel preached to you. If you do not believe that, your faith is worthless. And it reminds us as we think on the death and the resurrection of Christ today in this great gospel enterprise. It reminds us when we look to the affairs of this world and we hear the call of Christ not to set our worries on these things, but to look to the end when the gospel is proclaimed to all the earth. As we bring all of that together, we are reminded by this passage that when we enter heaven, there are many things that matter so very much to us now that will not matter at all then. One of those things is not the gospel of Christ. What will matter What will be of utmost importance will be whether you stand firmly on the bedrock truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The essence of that gospel is not a decision of commitment you may have made one day. That's not its essence. The essence of that gospel is not a spirit of dedication to God. It is not a warm feeling that you got about God one day when you prayed. It is not certainly a litany of religious rituals. Our salvation comes through a message. A message of divine truth. And that message is this. Jesus Christ, God's Son, was born in human flesh of the lineage of David to the Virgin Mary. He died as a sacrificial substitute in the stead of sinners. And He rose from the dead in defeat of death and sin. If you can focus in on me and let us just all have a one-on-one conversation. Have you received this message? Do you stand firmly on it? Do you cling to it in faith? Are you firmly holding on to this truth? I'm not asking if you've had an experience. I'm not asking if you know all the facts. I'm asking, have you staked your life on these truths? If you have not, then there is a call in this passage to receive this message. What I preached, Paul said, you received unto salvation. Have you received this message in a personal way? Embracing it as the truth and embracing it as your only salvation from eternal damnation. If you have not, there is a call to you today to receive that message. And it is my prayer and our prayer as a church that God will open your eyes to see that truth and to embrace that message. It is through that message that we are saved. Have you received it? No matter what might happen in your life between here and the end, that is what matters. It matters that you know this message and that it has changed you and saved you. Having received that message, we walk in the path of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles who proclaim this same message, verse 11. This is what we preach. And this is the message that Christ calls all of us as believers to proclaim. It is this message spread throughout this world that is the cause to which we have been called and the reason that we have life. One of the reasons that we are given life in this world. Are you proclaiming the gospel of Christ? Are you working to provide, to make, to create by God's grace opportunities to proclaim the gospel of Christ? First of all, you must know what it is. Secondly, you must embrace it with all of your heart. And thirdly, we need to have our focus and our attention where it belongs, ultimately. And that is to proclaim this message until we are taken home. 
There are many ways to do that. Let me just mention a couple that might affect some of you here in different ways. I would never say that all of us should be, do all of these things necessarily, but just to let you know. There's first of all, uh, we have, have had scheduled for some time on uh, April 5th an evangelistic outreach to our community where we will go from uh, house to house and uh, part of our work with our seminary students. And if you would like to join them and be part of that effort on that day, I'd encourage you to come and proclaim the gospel of Christ or at least look for an opportunity to do so on April the 5th. If you would like to just come along as a silent participant or you'd like to learn how to, uh, what we might do to contact people, I'd encourage you to be there. We don't do that every week as a church. We could, and anybody that would like to certainly can with our blessing if it is appropriate. But we will do that as in a, at a couple of times here this spring in a concerted effort to say the message is there. We can't make anyone receive it and we shouldn't try to force reception, but April 5th, Saturday. On April 20th, Easter Sunday, we have a day in which many in our culture are open to attending church once, twice a year, and if they are, once or twice falls on Easter, generally. There might be some neighbors in your area that are, would be willing to come with you and to hear the gospel proclaimed, the resurrection of Christ and his death and its meaning. Is there someone that you could bring to this location? We talk about meeting others on their turf. We talk about meeting some here on our turf. Maybe someone is open to that and you could bring them along and they could hear the gospel proclaimed on April 20th, Easter Sunday. I'll give you two tangible ideas just to think about here today. But I would also encourage you that the gospel of Christ is never, never was intended to be disseminated at certain focal points in our life. It was intended to be disseminated through the pores of our skin, as it were. To be spoken and to be illustrated at all times in every context. We are here as ambassadors for Him. And every neighbor, and every school situation, and every work situation, and every holiday with unsaved relatives are all places where we are to shine forth the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Paul is right, if the gospel of Christ is of utmost importance, Can we say, by the way that we live, that we believe Him? If we do, this will be the compelling focus of every day of our lives. That does not mean that God may always open an opportunity to proclaim the gospel every day in a specific way. But it means that in every day we are searching and striving and seeking to be disseminators of this truth, proclaimers of this message. So, have you not received this gospel? I call upon you in the name of Christ to receive it today. Have you received this gospel? I call upon you in the authority of Paul's writings and the commission of Jesus 
to proclaim that gospel widely and effectively by his grace. So as we bow now for prayer, Paul said, I worked harder than all of them. And the reason was the grace of God. I think we should go to the throne of God and plead with him for that grace to be seen in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, please help us to see reality. As important as they are, our jobs and our neighborhoods and our families are of secondary importance. The NCAA tournament is of secondary importance. War in Iraq is of secondary importance. And Lord, we realize that these things are of, of great significance to each of us in certain ways. But may we never lose sight of what matters most. May we be walking examples of the salvation that you have wrought in our hearts through Jesus. And by your grace, dear God, may we proclaim that gospel widely. Will you do a work in our church and shower down upon us the grace of, that comes from your throne to give us the energies and the focus and the attention to be busy about proclaiming the gospel? I pray for this grace. I pray your mercy and your blessing upon our endeavors here this spring and on Easter Sunday and every day of our lives. Please open opportunities for us and bless us to your glory and to your honor, I pray. If there is one among us who knows you not as Savior, I plead, Lord, that they'd embrace the gospel. In Christ's name I pray, amen.